Last week we had in the morning and evening services um, the first two of four uh, of a series uh, that we might consider pillars of the faith. Uh, Last Sunday morning we considered a fairly simple question, what is the gospel? Just to review, we learned that it was a a factual message, a propositional message about Jesus Christ. That Christ was the eternal Son of God. That He became man in the fullest sense, and so was God and man in one person with two natures. But beyond that, that He came as a prophet, as the prophet, the prophet of God, the Word of God Himself, revealing God, to be heard as the greatest authority upon penalty of destruction. That he came as the priest, the great high priest, the perfect substitute for sinners, both actively fulfilling the law of God in his own righteous life, and then standing in the place of sinners to receive the curse of God, that His righteousness might be imputed to sinners and that they be declared free of guilt and pardoned. And then finally, that He came as a King, as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, set down on the right hand of the throne of God, given all authority over everything that is named, And coming again to judge the world and to take vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel. That message, those vitally important facts, are the content of the gospel. Now then in the evening, we considered a second vitally important question. Because we said, well... It isn't enough then to just say, here's the gospel. Because the gospel demands a response. And so we ask the question, what was the response? And of course, to summarize, it was to believe. But, but then we asked a further question, which is, well, what is this faith? What is this saving faith, which when exercised by men hearing the gospel brings them justification. And just to summarize again, we saw that saving faith was described as consisting of three things, knowledge, assent or agreement, and trust. Knowledge, assent, and trust in Jesus Christ as He is displayed in the preaching of the gospel as a prophet and a priest and a king. Obviously, the knowledge part is fairly obvious. Apart from the factual content of the gospel, you can't know who Jesus Christ is. And if you hear different facts, then by definition you have a different Christ. And that's not a gospel at all. But we saw that men could... Men could know all of these vitally important facts of the gospel. They could know everything about it. But just the knowledge wasn't saving. So we moved on to the second part, which is also fairly obvious in a way, assent or agreement. 
It's not enough to know all the facts. We, we have to agree with them. Because if you reject anything, any part of those vital gospel facts, then you are rejecting the Christ of the gospel. But we saw that that wasn't enough either. Because men could know all of these things and they could agree with them. But as I mentioned last week, uh, they might have the same relationship to Christ that I have to the Queen of England. I know that she exists and I believe that she exists and I believe she's the Queen of England and I acknowledge that. But it has absolutely nothing to do with my life because I am not a subject of her kingdom. I know about her. I assent to the facts. But that's not it. And we saw that saving faith then was summed up not only as knowledge and assent, but also as trust, as, as a kind of personal embrace or reliance. Not merely knowing about Christ as a priest, but abandoning your own self-righteousness and flying to Him for salvation. Abandoning your own self-government and cleaving to Christ as King. Abandoning your own self-wisdom and entrusting yourself to Him as the great prophet of God. And then finally we considered the nature of believing. Because it's one thing to describe what faith is in terms of knowledge, assent, and trust, but what about the exercise of it? What is it when a man believes? And we saw that faith was an inward spiritual quality. And that it couldn't be reduced to some kind of mechanical formula or action without fundamentally altering its character. And if you're interested in, in any of that and you weren't here last Sunday evening, that is on tape. So we come now to our third pillar. Turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. We'll be beginning at verse 25. And there went great multitudes with him, that's Christ. And there went great multitudes with Christ. And he turned and said to them, If any man come to me, and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost to see whether you have sufficient supply to finish it? Lest, after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with ten thousand to meet him that cometh against him with twenty thousand? Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends an ambassador and desires conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that does not forsake all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. We can imagine this scene begins at verse 25 with these great multitudes, a, a, a huge crowd 
following Jesus Christ. In fact, two chapters earlier in Luke chapter 12, it says there were so many people in this multitude that they were trampling each other. It was like this throng, this press. And virtually everywhere he went through the course of his ministry, Jesus was followed by these crowds. I mean, people would come out and they would go from place to place and he'd go to another city and they'd heard about him and these crowds would show up and these multitudes and they're watching him and they're listening to him and they're seeing his miracles and and they're receiving his miracles. He he healed them and they're hearing his teaching and, and it says they were astonished. And they were wondering in astonishment at his teaching. And they're gossiping, who could this man be? Is is he the prophet? Is he the Christ? All of this energy and all this interest and this hope. This may be the Messiah. This may be the King of Israel. I can almost hear it now. You know, if if some of our modern commentators had uh, had been writing the contemporary accounts, can't you hear it? It doesn't matter whether they're Arminians from Campus Crusade or Calvinists from the Banner of Truth. Oh, it's a great revival, praise God. All thousands of people are being saved. God's Spirit is returning to the land. Look, I mean, Jesus is here and all these multitudes of people are after Him and, and it's such a wondrous display of the grace of God. But confronted with this great multitude, what does Jesus do? Does he thank God for this great revival? Does he write a letter back to Galilee talking about the thousands who are being saved? Does he praise God for this mighty return of his spirit to the land? What Jesus does is preach a message that we could call... How to shrink a church in one easy lesson. Jesus says, and Jesus was an impeccably honest man. Perfectly honest. We know that. Jesus, these great multitudes with him, he turns around. And he basically says, look, this isn't what you think it is. In fact, I'm afraid some of you may be mistaken about what this is. Because we're not on some path to glory and fame and riches and power. And you people that are all excited, you don't know what you're talking about. You're ignorant. You don't know what's going on here. You need to know the facts of the matter because you see, once I fill you in on the facts, you may just change your mind about what you think about me. You may not be so keen about following me around anymore. Because if you embrace me, if you enter my kingdom, if you receive my gospel, it's not like what you're thinking. It's going to cost you. It's going to cost you everything. So maybe you'd better count the cost before you toss your hat in the ring. Following Christ is a little bit like joining the military. If you go down to the recruiter office 
Marines or Army or what have you, and you say, I'd, I'd like to join the military. They say, that's great. Uncle Sam wants you. In fact, if you're a woman, Uncle Sam wants you today, too. And so they give you the paperwork, and you fill it out, and it's free. It didn't cost you a single thing to join the military. They are glad to have you. Go through your physical and then make sure a few things check out okay. But they, that, that's great. This, this not even, you don't even have to pay like a $25 application fee like getting into college or something. It's free. But once you sign on the dotted line, you give up something. You give up self-government. You give up self-rule. You become a man under authority. You ship out. You train. You do as you're told. In fact, if you don't do as you're told, there's a pretty severe penalty. A lot more severe than you could ever get in a, in a civilian environment. And in fact, if it just happens to be the wrong time, so to speak, they may even send you to a foreign country, give you a weapon, and tell you to kill other people and die yourself. You see, enlistment is free, but there are costs and there are consequences of signing on that dotted line. And if you didn't think about that when you did it, I think that man could be called a fool. It's just like these folks that Jesus talks about, the two examples he gives here. One of the guys is going to build a tower. Have any of you ever seen a half-built uh, like a half-built industrial facility where the company went bankrupt like halfway through it and, and they didn't finish. It is, there's nothing worse than that. Or somebody's house, they got the framing up and a little bit of roof on and they, and they ran out of money and it sat there for like six years. It's useless. And, and you go by a, a place, guy's building a plant and he runs out of money, he's going to make something. And Jesus says, you know, People mock at that. This man began to build and he wasn't able to finish it. He didn't even check in his wallet before he started to see if he had the money. Or this king, he's, he's going he's to go to war with somebody else, with his 10,000 soldiers versus their 20,000. Who wins? It's pretty obvious. So what does he do? He sits down he says, I can't win this. He sends an ambassador to seek peace. Otherwise, he's a fool. So, Jesus says, before you enlist with me, if you will, there's a few things you need to know. Verse 26, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, he cannot be my disciple. He cannot be my disciple. So what's up with this? Is Jesus commanding us to hate one another? That doesn't seem right, does it? Because the 11th commandment. Love one another. God is love. Love is the fulfilling of the law. What is this Jesus to say? Hate your father? Hate your mother? Hate your sisters and brothers and your children? Well, this statement, of course it's hyperbole, if you know what that is. It's an exaggeration. And it's based on a doctrine that you can find in Matthew chapter 10. And we're going to come back to Matthew 10 extensively, but I'll just read you a couple of verses. It's based on a doctrine about what happens when the gospel is preached someplace. 
Jesus says, the gospel is being preached. Jesus says, and brothers shall deliver up the brother to death, and the father the child, and children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death, and ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. Think not that I am come to send peace on the earth. I am not come to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes, enemies, shall be those of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, family is a wholesome thing, isn't it? I mean, everybody's for the family. Who'd be against the family? And we all know that family ties, historically speaking, are the strongest ties there are, the ties of blood, the ties of marriage. God, in fact, has designed it this way. It's called natural affection in the Bible. In fact, if you don't have it, it's considered an extreme sign of of, of reprobation, of abandonment of God, to be without natural affection. So it's perfectly appropriate that men would have these ties of blood and marriage and that they would love their husband and wife and their father and their mother and their, their sons and their daughters. And in fact, these ties are so strong that men will do virtually anything for them. sacrifice for them, die for them, even kill for them. Some of the greatest deeds recorded in history have been deeds done for a person's family. Personal sacrifice for a person's family. But this comes with a price, doesn't it? Because what happens when someone within the family disrupts the unity? They're worse than an enemy. They're a traitor. Do you know what happens to an Orthodox Jew if he converts to Christianity? His parents and his family have a funeral for him. To them, he is as if he was dead. Countless marriages have been ruined, if you will, by the gospel. Two people happily going along in their lives, with a unity of purpose, and suddenly one of them gets religion. Suddenly, one of them says, I've got to start running all these things through the filter of Jesus Christ and His Word. It's even acknowledged in the Scriptures in 1 Corinthians that a common result of that is that the unbelieving spouse will depart. Because they ask Paul the question, what what do you do in this situation? In fact... I think it may be true that a house with no Christians in it at all is happier than a house 
with one Christian in it. In some countries, in some Islamic countries, a man's own family will kill him for converting to Christianity. His own family will kill him for converting to Christianity. I think some of you know exactly what I'm talking about by experience. You know what it is to have a father or a mother or a sister or a brother or a wife or a husband or a child with whom the gospel has been a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. You know the pain, you know the sorrow, you know the affliction. Because at the end of the day, there is no absolute promise that the gospel will be a healer of family relations. In fact, he teaches exactly the opposite, Jesus does. He teaches expressly that the gospel will be a source of division and pain and murder and strife. In actual practice, the gospel does not heal society's divisions or cure the world's ills. So there are some for whom to embrace the gospel is to forsake their entire family. Now, of course, some of you may be thinking, well, glad that doesn't apply to me. My wife, my husband's saved. I mean, we're raising our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I don't have to worry about this. Thank God I don't have to worry about this. This doesn't apply to me. Let me ask you a real tough question. What if we're in this room and five minutes from now, armed men from the government burst in the door, line us all up outside, put the parents on one side and the kids on the other, and say, all right, you've got two choices. You can deny Christ or we'll kill your children right now. And that's not some kind of exaggeration. Sudan, China, the former Eastern Bloc countries. I had a professor at uh, Criswell College who was Romanian, a Romanian pastor who was imprisoned and tortured. And one of the fun little things that the Romanian government used to do to cause problems for the Christians is they would bring a guy in and then they would bring his family in and they would torture his family in front of him. Of course, you might think, well, surely God, you know, would kind of be cool with it. I mean, if we said, well... Uh, Jesus, uh, yeah, we don't, no, we're not doing that here. Jesus says, He that denies me before men, him will I deny before my Father in heaven. We enter the kingdom alone. You don't take your wife or your husband with you, you don't take your son or your daughter with you, you don't take your father and mother. You go into the kingdom one at a time. What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Some men some men trade their souls for their families. That's an eternal mistake. In verse 33, 
Jesus says, Likewise, whosoever he be of you that does not forsake all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. This word forsake is the verb form from which we get the word apostasy. Like when people depart from the gospel. And apostasy from the gospel, that doesn't mean you forgot about the gospel. That means you knowingly, willingly turn your back on it. You turn away completely. That's what apostasy is. Jesus says, whoever he be of you that does not apostatize from all that he has, from all of his possessions, he cannot be my disciple. That is the relationship a man must have towards his possessions just to enter the kingdom. This is something Jesus knew by experience. Luke chapter 4, it says, And the devil, taking him up into a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this power will I give you and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me and to whomsoever I will give it. If you therefore will worship me, all shall be thine. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. All the kingdoms of the world. Just turn your back on God. Moses, here is an astonishing man. This is a man who was raised as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And what that essentially means is that Moses was in line to be the Pharaoh of Egypt. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, when he grew up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ as greater riches than all the treasures in Egypt. For he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Moses, as a type of Christ, could have ruled Egypt, which is a type of the world. He could have had all the treasures of Egypt. He could have been worshipped as a god, because that's what the pharaohs they believed they were. They believed they were kind of a continuing incarnation of God. He had everything. And he went out, and he turned his back on it, and he spent 40 years herding sheep, and he spent another 40 years wandering around in the desert with people that wouldn't obey God. And he died out there because of the reproach of Christ. He chose over the treasures in Egypt. The disciples knew this by experience. Peter and James and John. Luke chapter 5, there with their ships and their nets, and Jesus calls them. And it says, when they brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed Him. Matthew, he's sitting at his job. I mean, he's at work. He's collecting taxes. Levi, Matthew, the tax collector, there he is sitting at the receipt of custom. And Jesus says, follow me. He doesn't even give two weeks notice. He gets up. He says, after these things, he went forth and saw a publican named Levi sitting at the receipt of custom. And he said unto him, follow me. And he left all and rose up and followed him. 
is a fairly simple lesson, and that is that a man's possessions often keep him from God. The problem is a fundamental one. For the most part, the road to riches is paved with sin. For the most part, if you're going to be a man of wealth and a man of power, you have to walk in a pathway of sin. And so, if you're going to follow Christ, you have to abandon that road. And if you have already walked that road, and you have accumulated that unrighteous mammon, then you have to abandon those accumulated riches to walk with God. It's like Zacchaeus. Saw Jesus, came down, restored fourfold all that he'd stolen. Jesus said, this day salvation has come to this house. No man can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one and love the other or hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, the deification of possessions, of money. But of course, many people try. Christ is recognizing in giving this command to forsake all that you have that a man's decisions are governed by the state of his heart. The situation your heart is in before God determines what you do when a choice is set before you. Why do men have anxiety? Because they lay up for themselves treasures upon the earth where the moth eats and rust destroys and the thief steals. There's no security because they've laid up all their treasures on the earth and where their treasure is there will their heart be also and their heart's in their possessions and you can't hold on to them and they have anxiety. If a man's heart is in his treasures, and his treasures are on the earth, how will he respond to Christ? The answer is in Matthew chapter 19. Famous story. Behold, one came and said to him, verse 16, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you call me good? There's none good but one, that is God. But if you will enter life, keep the commandments. This man said to him, which commandments? Jesus said, shalt not murder, shalt not commit adultery, shalt not steal, shalt not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother, love thy neighbor as thyself. He's setting him up, of course, because he's left off one, hasn't he, of the second table. He's left off the tenth commandment. The young man said to him, all these things have I kept from my youth up. What do I lack? Jesus said, If you will be perfect, go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. When the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful. For he had great possessions. A rich man, how hard it is for him to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Some people, even today, are called immediately to abandon all that they have or all that they could have. You think of people who, like our Orthodox Jew before, perhaps he stands to gain a great inheritance. 
perhaps he's the firstborn son and his father is rich. And if he stays in his Orthodox Jewish faith, he'll have it all. Millions, maybe. Or maybe his father is just an ungodly man who hates Christianity. For that man to embrace Christ is to abandon all of those riches. Some are more like our first example, the situation where some authority, some wicked government steps in and says, Christ, that's great. You can, you can follow Him, but you can't have anything because we're going to take your house and your car and your land and all of your belongings and we're going to make you destitute. So that happened too. It still happens. In fact, uh, the same teacher that I was just mentioning, the Romanian, his experience ended finally. They didn't kill him, which was a miracle, though they tried several times. But they finally said, we've had enough of you. So we're throwing you out of the country. But don't think you're taking anything. And they put him on a boat to New York. And he was penniless. And he didn't speak a word of English. Nor did any member of his family. And he didn't know a single soul in this whole country. Likewise, whosoever he be of you that does not forsake all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. Sometimes it's more insidious. More gradual. The daily compromises. A man in business. He's tempted. Every day. He could get a little bit more. If he just fudge. Just a little bit. Today. A little bit more tomorrow. A little bit more the day after that. The man who absents himself departs from the hearing of the gospel because he needs a little more money. So maybe if he does a little more overtime, later on, he'll be okay. Just the cares that come as a person gradually accumulates wealth. Last Sunday night we talked about the the sowings of the seed. The second sowing is more like uh, our first and third example that we'll get to today where you're faced with a choice suddenly and men either endure or apostatize. The the seed sprung up quickly but, but when persecution because of the gospel came They apostatized. They abandoned it. But what about that third sowing? That's the one I have in mind here. It's the weed that springs up next to the plant. It doesn't kill it. Not today. Not tomorrow. This takes the nutrients a little at a time. Gets a little bit bigger. Till finally it's shading the sun. And the plant just starts to wither just isn't growing anymore. And pretty soon it's withered up. And pretty soon it's dead. That's what the cares and riches of this world do. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? As many 
people as there are who have traded their souls for their families, I believe the number is probably exponentially higher who have traded their souls for their riches. It's not a not a good bargain. Forsake your family, forsake your possessions. One third thing. Whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. What is a cross? Cross is an instrument of shame, an instrument of death. To embrace the cross is to embrace shame. It's to submit to death. It is, as Christ says in verse 26, to hate your own life. And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and for the gospels, the same shall save it. For a man to follow him, Christ says, he must not only forsake family and friends and houses and lands, he must be prepared to embrace a way of suffering and of shame and of persecution that may culminate in the sacrifice of his own life just because of the confession of Christ. What's interesting is, of course, perhaps because of their own experience, the apostolic writers in the epistles do not consider this to be unusual or surprising. It's considered the norm. Peter says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. Now, Peter isn't talking about how, you know, they lost a job promotion. Peter says the fiery trial which is to try you. Don't think that it's strange. You see, Peter and the other apostles and Jesus Christ understood the nature of the world. The world as we know it, in spite of its wars and its murders and its dissensions and its hating one another and killing one another, the world is fundamentally a place of unity. It's united under one government. It, it's united under one purpose and it has one prince. The prince of this world. People talk about how they're waiting for the one world government. Beloved, we have the one world government. His name is Satan. He's the prince of this world. Now what happens in a nation, even a nation that has disagreement and tension? Think about America. I mean, people here hardly get along. They're not killing each other for the most part yet, but... They hardly get along. But what would happen the moment our soil was invaded by a foreign nation? Oh, there would be the rallying together. Every difference would be forgotten. Men would line up and enlist and they'd go out to fight the war against the enemy, to restore the American nation. Because that's the way nations and governments work. There's a fundamental unity. 
And that's precisely what's happened. The kingdom of God has invaded Satan's dominion. And so the children of Satan do not say, oh, that's too bad. I guess we lost. Well, we'll just go fishing. No. The whole power of death and hell and wickedness is unleashed and is united in one evil purpose, which is to destroy the work of God. Beloved, we know that we are of God, John says, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. This has been the case since the beginning of man. What do you think the serpent in the garden was doing? was destroying the work of God. The seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, this perpetual battle throughout time and the fulfillment in Christ, is simply an attempt, unsuccessful, by the devil to destroy the work of God. And there's this prototype event in Genesis. It's Cain and Abel. You all know the story. They both bring an offering to God. God receives uh, Abel's sacrifice. He rejects Cain's sacrifice. Cain uh, deceives his brother into coming out into the field, rises up and brutally murders him. In this, the children of God are manifest and the children of the devil. Whosoever does not do righteousness is not of God. Neither he that does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother. And why did he kill him? Because his own works were evil, and his brothers were righteous. So, marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you. You see, the more righteous you are, the more Christ-like you are, the more you walk in the path of sanctification, the more you're hated. The more you're despised. The more they can't stand you. And if they could, they would kill you. This is like a law of nature. The disciple is not above his master, neither is the servant above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master, and the servant as his Lord. So, if they have called the master of the house the devil, Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household? It's, It's so simple, it's so obvious. If the world says that Christ is the devil, what will they say about those who follow Christ? They'll say they follow the devil. But there's more to it even than this. According to the Bible, there's kind of a a necessary repetition of the sufferings of Christ that take place in the lives of Christians. Where, if we want to go where he went... We have to walk the road that he walked. It is a faithful saying, if we be dead with him, we'll also live with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. 
Now, the sufferings that are being talked about here are not primarily the sufferings of everyday life. We're not talking about just, you know, I had the flu last week. and It's not the sufferings that all men share as humans, although God certainly sanctifies those to Christians. The sufferings that are in mind here are sufferings on account of our identification with Christ, our walking in His path of righteousness. It's, it's what happens to you when you are following Christ. They speak evil of you. First Peter 4. They think it's strange that you do not run with them to the same excess of riot, and so they speak evil of you. But the king of all chapters in this regard is Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus gives a, a little miniature sermon on what happens to people who follow him. Beginning at verse 16, he says, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Skipping on, Beware of men. They will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you in your synagogues, and you shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. There will be political opposition. There will be religious opposition of the most severe kind. On to verse 21 that we read before. Brothers shall deliver up brother to death and father the child. Children rise up against their parents, cause them to be put to death. You'll be hated of all men for my name's sake. That, that family division, the family turning on the disciple of Christ. The verse we just read, disciples not above his master nor the servant above his Lord. They'll, they'll call you the devil, verse 25. And finally, in verse 28, Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. Opposition, hatred, suffering, death. When Jesus preaches his kingdom to this crowd, he says, Look, you can follow me, but it will cost you. Cost you everything. Cost you your family. Cost you your friends. Cost you your possessions. Cost you your life. Think about it. So, what possibly can motivate a man to do that? I mean, the world would say. You're clearly insane. Here this man has just told you that if you follow him, every bad thing that you can name will probably happen to you and you'll end up dying a premature death. Well, seeing a miracle, that, that's not enough motivation. The multitudes saw the miracles. Getting caught up in the emotional fervor of a sermon or some religious excitement that's going on. Will that sustain a man through this kind of confession and suffering? No. The multitudes had that. What about, what about if you were healed miraculously by, by, by the hand of Jesus? What if you were fed by Him with taking a few loaves and feeding thousands? Would that do it? No. Multitudes had that. 
What about hearing all of these sermons, this, this religious, pure religious instruction right out of the mouth of Jesus Christ? Wouldn't that do it? Surely that would be enough. No, the multitudes had all of these things. And do you know what it says in John 6? He's just given him a hard teaching, somewhat like this one. It says, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. And so Jesus said to the twelve, Will you also go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's when a man, woman, child values his soul above all other things and his eternal destiny and when he knows that Jesus only is the one with whom it rests. Let us pray. Our Father, our Lord, these teachings are hard. They are hard to our flesh. They are hard to receive. Lord, they're contrary to virtually everything that we hear around us whether from the sinful world or from pulpits where men profess to be teaching your truth. But Lord, how desperately we need to hear them. Father, we know that with the Lord Jesus is peace and pardon and eternal life and that no suffering for the sake of the gospel goes unrewarded. But we pray that you would Give us the hearts that would confess Christ at any cost because we love Him. Because with Him are the words of eternal life. In His name we ask it. Amen.